Good evening, folks, and a hearty welcome to our drive-in theater. We just want you to enjoy yourselves. A gay, pleasant evening for all. Oh, a word of caution. Mom or Pop, go with the kids when they leave the car. We hope you have a wonderful time. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome, Welcome to the Dead Zone. Welcome back, all you late-night weirdos. That's Danny over there. I'm Whitney, and this is the Dead Zone Screening Room. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm amazing because I am getting ready to talk about one of my favorite movies of all time. I'm I'm equally as excited. Uh, I got to show you this for the first time the other night. Yes, this was my uh, first watch of this amazing movie. <laughs> And and you claim to enjoy it. Yeah, I really did. Surprisingly, surprisingly, because I didn't expect to enjoy it as much as I did. Uh, I really, really was uh, just in awe of how fucking nuts this movie was. <laughs> uh, this movie is fucking nuts. It's uh, Tarantino. It is his attempt at a slasher film, believe it or not. I know that seems weird because it deals with cars. Uh, but that's kind of the premise. It's it's a slasher film, only instead of using uh, very sharp knives and machetes, he uses a car to kill his victims. And uh, it's equally as terrifying, if you ask me. It it really is. Uh, this movie is balls to the wall action when it gets there. Yes. Uh, because the other part of this movie is a whole lot of Tarantino dialogue. Yes. And and that's not everyone's jam. A lot of people don't want to sit around and just listen to people talk. I happen to enjoy it. I am fascinated by it. Tarantino has a way of writing dialogue that sounds very natural. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you literally just feel like you're sitting around watching a vlog that someone filmed yeah. of, their, of their day yeah. uh, that just so happens to be a terrifying movie about people who die in car wrecks. Yes. Yes. But I'd watch that vlog, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want that to be real. But uh, yeah, this this movie, it's crazy. It is a crazy one. Yeah, I was, we, the movie ended and I was like, I think I want to watch it again, <laughs> which doesn't always happen with the movies we watch. It just because. Either like I need, you know, a mental break to kind of process everything or it's just like, okay, we watched it. That was fine. Yeah. But this one, I immediately wanted to turn around and watch it again, A, because it was just so good. But B, I just feel like, and I think a lot of it had to do with that dialogue and and the personable friendships that you experience along the way is is, I just wanted to kind of be back in that again and um, see if there was anything I missed the first watch in those conversations and be just kind of be back in, in those friendships again. It was just, it, like you said, it's really, he does, he has a way of making it feel really organic and in a movie that's so high intensity and so, um, shocking in some parts, I feel like you need that to counter counterbalance it. And, and I, I liked being able to live, live there in, in their conversations because it, I think it makes the other half of the movie, the part that's really fucking scary and terrifying, even more scary and terrifying because exactly. you just went from talking with the gals to now we're being 
murdered. Terrorized. And that's scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and that's the thing with Tarantino's films is they're always a journey. And you have to go through one part to really appreciate the others. Yeah. You know, the the real high intensity stuff, the fun, gory stuff that we all come for. It really is supported by the other half, which is a lot of this uh, conversation, which is a pure character building. And that's all that it is. It's a way that Tarantino endears you to these characters without you really knowing dick about these characters. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about it, you hardly know anything about their backstories. But when it's all said and done, you feel like you've known these people for years. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really a talent uh, and, and one that I am constantly impressed by. Uh, so obviously, we're going to have a lot to talk about, especially me with this movie. I'm going to geek out and just try and put in every possible fact I can. There's going to be a lot of stuff that we just aren't going to have time to, but I'm just, this is my geek moment. This is my, I'm excited. I'm, I'm here so for excited. it. I've, I was so excited knowing that this was one of your favorite movies. I get excited knowing that like, you're going to get into the thick of it and I'm, I'm just here to experience it. I'm excited. All right. Well, just to recap, a few months ago, Danny and I inherited a traveling drive-in theater and were told to watch horror movies of our choosing to figure out what we want to add to the theater's vault and what to leave behind in the dead zone. The only other rule is to never be late opening the drive-in for those who are able to find us because... Yeah, the theater moves around, it's never in the same place twice, and it's a mystery as to where it'll show up next. But if you can use your knowledge of horror and follow the clues in each episode, you might be able to figure out where the drive-in will show up next. And this month, in honor of travel and family and the start of the holidays, we are in the middle of a new series we like to call Highway to Hell, where we check out horror flicks all about horrible road trips. And this week, we are talking about one of my favorites, Tarantino's Death Proof. Talk about a horrible road trip. <laughs> it it goes bad real quick. <laughs> And of course, now is when I give you guys our spoiler warning. If you guys want to check out this crazy ass road trip movie yourself, it is available to rent now on YouTube, Vudu, Prime Video, and Apple TV. We weren't able to find it streaming anywhere. Um, but as always, we encourage you guys to watch the movie beforehand. But we know that this is not everybody's jam, whether that be the gore or just the uh, trope itself. Whatever your reasoning, there's no judgment here. We're going to spoil everything here anyways. So hang out, enjoy the ride, because it's it's a wild, wild fucking ride. <laughs> it is definitely a wild ride. It is a lot of fun. Of course, it's a Quentin Tarantino film, so that gore is really prevalent. Now, in this one, it's kind of all localized in one scene yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's intense that mm-hmm. one scene he pulls out all the stops so we are gonna give you a little trigger warning for some gore but other than that it's it's by tarantino standards it's pretty tame i haven't seen a whole lot of tarantino movies to to have a whole basis uh i've only seen what you've shown me thus far which uh, is kill bill you've seen kill bill the well, first one i watched once upon a time in hollywood thank you we very did much. watch that we did watch that again also Oddly enough, fairly tame by yes. his standards. Yeah, yeah. That's why I, I, I was saying, for me, I don't have a whole lot of basis. But, I mean, gore is gore. I'm, I'm, I'm here for it, whether it's a few, few seconds or the whole movie. 
I'll take it. You'll take it. And this is some some good gore. It really is. I There, there was a lot of audible, oh my gosh, happening <laughs> in the movie. Yeah, if you don't know what's coming, it, it's going to take you by surprise. Yeah. It's a lot more intense than, than you think it's going to be. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well... I mean, we just got to start talking about it. It's got to be done. We got to do it. Let's do it. Uh, so let's get to the wiki. Uh, now, Death Proof is a 2007 American horror film written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. It stars a huge cast, including Kurt Russell, Rosario Dawson, Rose McGowan, Vanessa Ferlito, Jordan Ladd, Sidney Tamia Portier, Tracy Toms, Mary Elizabeth Weinstead, and stuntwoman extraordinaire Zoe Bell. The story for Death Proof developed from Quentin Tarantino's fascination for the way stuntmen would death-proof stunt cars so a driver could survive horrific high-speed crashes and collisions. Apparently, he learned of the term over a drunken hotel night with actor Sean Penn. Tarantino mentioned wanting to buy a Volvo simply for the safety aspect, so Sean told him he could take any car and give it to a stunt team, and for ten dollars to $15,000, they could death-proof it for him. The term stuck, and this inspired Tarantino to want to create a slasher film featuring a deranged stuntman who stalks and murders young women with his death-proof car. Tarantino remembers, quote, I realized I couldn't do a straight slasher film, so I realized, let me take the structure of a slasher film and just do what I do. My version is going to be fucked up and disjointed, but it seemingly uses the structure of a slasher film, hopefully against you, end quote. After being stunned by stuntwoman Zoe Bell, who worked as Uma Thurman's stunt double in Tarantino's earlier film, Kill Bill, Tarantino wrote her the leading female role. This was Bell's first on-screen acting role, which she initially thought was just going to be a cameo. It wasn't until she saw her name featured on the film's poster opposite Kurt Russell, Rosario Dawson, and Rose McGowan that she realized how big her role really was. After Bell was cast, Tarantino told her he would hire another stunt person to take Bell's place in the scenes where her face wasn't visible, but Bell didn't like that idea at all, her reason being if another actress were cast in this role and she had been hired to only perform the stunts, then she would be doing all the stunts anyway, so she should do all the stunts. Tarantino honored her request, and it is indeed Zoe Bell you see performing every single one of her stunts. And they are mind-blowing. Oh, she's a badass. If you've never seen this film, I guarantee you've never seen anything like it. I was I was just in awe the whole time. <laughs> it, will, it will freak your shit, man. <laughs> it freaked my shit the first time I saw it. <laughs> so, Death Proof uses various unconventional techniques to make the film appear more like those that were shown in grindhouse theaters in the 1970s. The exploitation films of that time were generally shipped around from theater to theater and usually ended up in bad shape. So, in an effort to mimic that type of damage authentically, the negative of the film was intentionally scratched and damaged. Another technique used was the implementation of deliberate jump cuts. One example of this is at the beginning of the film when the title Quentin Tarantino's Thunderbolt is shown for a split second before abruptly being replaced by an insert with the title Death Proof. Historically, exploitation films were commonly retitled, especially if they received bad press on initial release. 
But in this case, the alternate Thunderbolt title was just added as a nod to those old films. Tarantino had always intended the film to be titled Death Proof. As for the cut of the film, Tarantino stated, quote, There's a half hour's difference between my death proof and what is playing in Grindhouse. I was like a brutish American exploitation distributor who cut the movie down almost to the point of incoherence. I cut it down to the bone and took all the fat off of it to see if it could still exist. And it worked, end quote. That extended version of Death Proof was screened in competition for the Palme d'Or at the 60th Annual Cannes Film Festival. Death Proof was released in the U.S. and Canada alongside Robert Rodriguez's Planet Terror as part of a double feature under the title Grindhouse. The features were accompanied by coming attractions for other fictitious exploitation films, with each segment handled by a different director, including Robert Rodriguez, Rob Zombie, Edgar Wright, Eli Roth, and Jason Eisner. The fake trailers were just as entertaining as the features themselves, with titles like Machete, Werewolf Woman of the SS, Don't, Thanksgiving, and Hobo with a Shotgun, two of which, Machete and Hobo with a Shotgun, went on to actually be made into feature-length films. Also, look for cameos of Nicolas Cage in Werewolf Women of the SS and Simon Pegg and Nick Frost in Don't. If you've never had the full Grindhouse experience, it is available on Blu-ray with both movies and all the fake trailers. Uh, If you are a fan of film and can appreciate the parody of it, it is not to be missed. I dug every single minute of it, but that's not what we're here to talk about. We're just here (laughs) to talk about this one half, Death Proof, which is equally as fun. Uh, But it turns out a lot of people don't have a very long attention span anymore, and no one really wanted to sit through a double feature. Or some people just wanted to see one and not the other, and it just didn't do well at the box office in that format. I mean, it didn't flop, but it wasn't breaking any box office records either. So when it came time to release the film internationally, both films were released separately in their extended versions, approximately two months apart. Although some claim the reason the movies were split was because an international audience wouldn't understand the idea of a double feature, since that's a very American concept. But I really think they're not giving their audience enough credit there. I really think it just came down to what it always comes down to, which is money. Yeah, that makes the most sense. I mean, I don't think it would be very hard to explain what a double feature is. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, it's two movies. They play them back to back. That's that's it. (laughs) Got it. Hope that wasn't too hard for you. Well, Death Proof currently holds a score of 65% on Rotten Tomatoes, with an average rating of 5.7 out of 10. The site's critical consensus reads, quote, Death Proof may feel somewhat minor in the context of Tarantino's larger filmography, but on its own merits, it packs just enough of a wallop to deliver sufficiently high-octane grindhouse goods, end quote. Empire Magazine gave the film four out of five stars, describing the film as, quote, Tarantino driving wildly under the influence and seriously entertaining, end quote. While The Guardian's Peter Bradshaw expressed admiration for the car chase scene, describing it as, quote, unquote, a lethal roar of entertainment. 
but said that the film was padded with, quote, long, long, long stretches of bizarrely inconsequential conversation, end quote. Death Proof was released on DVD in the U.S. on September 18th, 2007, in a two-disc special edition. That same special edition would be re-released on Blu-ray on December 16th, 2008. The Grindhouse double feature was eventually released on Blu-ray in October of 2010. One more thing of note before we get to the movie. This film was edited by the late Sally Menke. She edited every single one of Tarantino's films from Reservoir Dogs to Inglorious Bastards and no doubt would have continued to work with him were it not for her untimely death in 2010. She was nominated for Oscars for her outstanding work twice, once for Pulp Fiction and once for Inglorious Bastards. It is really rare that a director stay with the same editor for every film they work on. But that's how Tarantino is. He constantly reuses cast and crew across multiple projects. But Sally was different. They had one of those symbiotic relationships where they just understood each other's vision, which made it very easy for them to work together. He always speaks so highly of her and her work. You can tell her passing was a big blow for him, not only career-wise, but personally as well. So I know that he would want viewers to understand that the intentional bad editing and crazy jump cuts are all deliberate and meant to reflect the chop jobs production houses would do to these films and not Sally Menke's work. I know a lot of people really didn't enjoy that aspect of the film, and I do agree that it can be jarring at times, but luckily it happens less and less as the film goes on, and we still get to see Sally Menke's amazing work shine through in the incredible way the action scenes are put together. They're just fantastic. They're really good. So as as a first-time viewer, what did you think of kind of that choppy editing? Was it distracting to you? I don't think so. Yeah? Yeah, I think especially going into it knowing that it was meant to kind of be this really like uh, choppy and kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Just kind of like dirty grindhouse movie. Yeah, cheap. Yeah, exactly. I think going into that made my mind accept it beforehand because I just Mm -hmm. didn't I mean like I noticed it I noticed you know there's some um color changes and stuff like that that happens um throughout the movie occasionally not 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 the whole movie or anything but that I think I took notice of but really it was I never found myself like coming out of the movie Mm -hmm. there was never anything that I was like okay this is too much like (laughs) when is this gonna stop or anything like that I felt like all of it and 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 I don't know that it you know would like make or break the movie at the end of the day but I also don't think that it took away from the movie yeah. so yeah I, I definitely feel like it totally was still watchable at the end of the day for sure yeah and and for those who might not be completely aware with what Grindhouse films are you know in the 70s you had these film studios that were literally grinding out these movies they'd film them in like two weeks they'd film them edit them and ship them out it was all about quantity not quality it was about getting these films out getting people's butts in the theaters and just paying their money to watch these movies over and over and so they would be churning these things out they'd go around from theater to theater they were really low quality usually the acting was really bad the story was 
inconsequential. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was just watching either these crazy car chases or these, you know, scary slasher films. But they you just go just to have a good time. You're not expecting any kind of, you know, Oscar worthy great filmmaking yeah and a lot of times these things got chopped up and sometimes they were even spliced with other movies and so they just made these crazy nonsensical films Mm -hmm. that you would go like to drive-ins or to see these double features where you could pay one price and spend all day at the theater and and that was your day yeah and so they they intentionally looked like crap just from all the usage and you know playing them over and over mm-hmm. and over again mm-hmm. in all these theaters. So that was the look that Tarantino was going for. So it makes it look like this old terrible B movie, but yet we have millions of dollars worth of a budget behind it yeah. and can really make something great mm-hmm. out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have good acting, good effects, all that stuff. Yeah, I think that's why... I, like I said, I, re- I really was never taken out of the element because there's just so much else behind it that really I felt like it was hard to even focus on. Because on, be- before going into it, you had you know brought up the fact that they had even intentionally kind of like scratched the negative and everything to kind of create a certain effect and everything. And I found myself initially trying to like search for that and everything, but very quickly it, it just falls by the way so. yeah exactly because yeah. I was just I was just too focused on what was going on in the movie so yeah for me it never took me out of it and I feel like if you go into the movie knowing that I'm I'm, I'm hopeful that that would kind of help to ease that um, worry if that's something that you're too worried about going into it because yeah I never felt at any moment that it was too much or exhausting or anything to be <laughs> watching and it or whatnot so yeah I totally still enjoyed it regardless of the fact well, I think it's high time we get to this movie and start talking about it. But do you want to give us a breakdown of what it's about? Yeah, I will give you a quick synopsis. So it says, Stuntman Mike is a professional body double who likes to take unsuspecting women for deadly drives in his free time. He has doctored his car for maximum impact. When Mike purposefully causes wrecks, the bodies pile up when he walks away with barely a scratch. The insane Mike may be in over his head, though, when he targets a tough group of female friends, including real-life stuntwoman Zoe Bell, who plays herself. All right. Well, buckle up, because here we go. It's going to be crazy. Now, I will uh, preface this by saying this movie is uh, mostly just talking and car driving. Uh, Not a whole lot happens, seemingly, but yet... A whole lot happens, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there's not a whole lot for me to describe to you. I, I am certainly not going to give you a play-by-play of all the dialogue. I will try and be describing the action scenes as much as possible, like I do. But as usual, we're going to tell you, go watch this movie. It is so much fun. Mm-hmm. If you like just high action giddy fun (laughs) yeah i mean i don't know how else to describe it yeah it's a good time we can't replace that experience (laughs) well here we go our film starts and we first see an old feature presentation insert they used to play shorts before movies in theaters things like old newsreels and looney tunes cartoons would be played to keep everyone entertained until showtime and then they would play this feature presentation insert to let you know the actual movie was now starting we then get another animated insert that tells us this film is restricted or rated r as we now call it today 
Whereas nowadays, they just put a card up that shows the film's rating, either G, PG, PG-13, R, NC-17, etc. In the 70s, when these old grindhouse pictures would have been released, the MPAA's rating systems was still fairly new. It only started in 1968, and individual theaters would use different types of animated inserts, like the one you see here with a cute little jaguar before the film to let you know what the rating was. So for there, we get an old production house logo for a company called Dimension Pictures, which was an actual production studio in the 70s that primarily released exploitation and horror films. However, the studio went defunct in 1981 and shouldn't be confused with Dimension Films, whose actual logo we did see before the movie started, who actually did distribute this film. We also briefly see a logo for Troublemaker Studios, which is Robert Rodriguez's production company. We then get our opening shot of two pair of women's feet hanging out of a car window as the car is being driven around. We hold this shot over the opening credits, the only exception being our title card sequence we talked about in the wiki where we see the fake title, Quentin Tarantino's Thunderbolt, before it's very quickly replaced with the less flashy title card that just says Death Proof. Next, we see the lovely owner of those feet, Jungle Julia, a local DJ in Austin, Texas. She crosses her apartment, plops her tall, gorgeous self on the couch, and pulls a long bong hit. We then cut to and hold a shot taken from inside a speeding car traveling dangerously fast down a one-lane blacktop. As our credits finish up, we switch back to Julia's apartment as two of her friends arrive, Viewers may have also noticed a credit for Quentin Tarantino as the director of photography. This is Tarantino's only feature film that he serves as his own director of photography. Our movie officially starts and we are back in the car with our three main ladies, Julia, Shauna, Julia's best friend, and Butterfly, another one of their friends who's in from out of town. The girls are trying to figure out who's holding and are disappointed to find out Julia isn't, who then gets pissed that they always just assume she's going to be the one to supply everyone with pot. Shanna tells her, okay, mean girl in a high school movie, which (laughs) is an amazing line. Butterfly tells them not to fight, to which Shanna explains that they're not fighting. Julia's just being a grumpy bitch and Shanna's just calling her out on it. They next pass one of Julia's promotional billboards of her radio station, of which she is prominently featured, and the girls all scream, Woo! in acknowledgement. The girls continue talking about their plans for the night. They'll first be headed to Guero's for some Mexican food and margaritas, and then it's off to meet the guys at the Texas Chili Parlor, including some dude named Christian Simonson, who is apparently a filmmaker that's in town that Julia is hoping to hook up with. The girls then grill Butterfly about what went on with her and a guy named Nate last night. Butterfly explains how they just made out for about 20 minutes and then she kicked him out and told him she'd see him tonight. Shanna then reminds him that there'll be no hooking up tonight because they'll be staying her daddy's lake house on Lake LBJ, to which he said, quote, I'm letting you and your girlfriend stay at my lake house, not you and a bunch of horny boys trying to get their fuck on with my daughter. And he means it. Apparently when Shanna and her bikini-clad friends stay at her daddy's lake house, He has a tendency to just pop up and make sure they don't need anything. Don't do that, Daddy. That's That's gross. Let's stop that. Creepy. I don't like it. (laughs) 
Well, the conversation then comes back around to pot again and how they're going to score. Shanna suggests trying their friend Lana Frank, to which Julia thinks is a great idea. They also pass a few more of Julia's billboards around town during the course of conversation and have to do their little woo yell each time. We also see they're being followed by a black 1971 Chevy Nova. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. What could that be? Don't know. Guess we'll have to watch to find out. (laughs) (laughs) So some introductions are in order here. Jungle Julia is played by the stunning and talented Sydney Tamia Portier. And if you couldn't tell by her name, she is the daughter of Oscar-winning actor Sydney Portier. She does have a few other creepy credits to her name, including Snoop Dogg's Hood of Horror, Night of the Living Dead, Darkest Dawn, which is an animated feature, and 2017's Clinical. Shanna here is played by actress Jordan Ladd, who is the daughter of actress Cheryl Ladd, who old-timers like me will remember starred as Chris Monroe on the TV classic Charlie's Angels. Her mom also starred in an episode of Charmed, which links her to Rose McGowan, and she was in a movie called Unforgettable with Rosario Dawson, both of whom star with her daughter in this movie. Fun. Everything's connected. Everything's connected. So Jordan does have some other creepy credits on her resume, including Embrace of the Vampire, Cabin Fever, Club Dread, Madhouse, Hostel Part 2, Electric Boogaloo, Grace, Satanic Panic, and Voices. And finally, actress Vanessa Ferlito here plays the role of Butterfly. Most people probably recognize her from either the television series CSI New York or NCIS New Orleans. But outside of this movie, she has no other creepy credits. Hmm. What's up? Maybe this scared her too much. I, I don't blame her. It's a very scary movie. It's very creepy scary. She's like, I've had enough. I'm good. <laughs> you have run over my face one too many times. I will not do it again. Well, next, our trio arrives at their first stop of the night, Guero's Taco Bar, which is a real place on South Congress in Austin, Texas. In fact, when we visited Austin a few years ago, I insisted we eat dinner here (laughs) just because I am a fan of this movie. Uh, So we did eat dinner here and we have stood in the very spot where Butterfly first sees Kurt Russell in his very scary car. Which is about to happen right now. So Julia and Shanna head inside while Butterfly stays outside to finish a cigarette when her attention is drawn by the sound of a loud engine. She turns and looks out in the street to see that black 1971 Chevy Nova, the same one that was seen following them earlier. The car then speeds off and Butterfly heads inside. Inside the restaurant, the trio is joined by Marcy, a friend of Julia's from UT. Marcy says, you must be the infamous butterfly, to which Shanna and Julia are all, she doesn't know anything about that, to which butterfly is all, all right, what the fuck is going on, (laughs) to which Julia has to admit that she might have said something on the radio about her, which was that she had a sexy friend in town named Butterfly and that they would be going out somewhere in Austin tonight. And if some kind of cute or kind of hot or kind of sexy or better be fucking hysterically funny, but not funny looking guy who you could fuck saw them, he should buy her a drink and recite a particular poem, which Marcy kindly acts out in this scenario. Julia then recites the poem. 
The woods are lovely, dark and deep, and I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. Did you hear me, butterfly? Miles to go before you sleep. And if they do all that and say all that, then Butterfly has to give him a lap dance, to which Butterfly says there ain't no fucking way she given anyone a lap dance. But don't worry, Julia reassures her she doesn't have to give a lap dance to anybody she doesn't want to because Julia said on the radio that Butterfly would only do it for the first guy who asked. So if some guy asks that she's not interested in, all she has to do is said she already did it at another place earlier. No harm, no foul. But at the very least, you get a free drink out of it. And maybe a little later in the evening, you've had a few drinks, you're kind of loosey-goosey, you're safe with your girls, and some kind of cute, kind of hot, kind of sexy, hysterically funny, but not funny-looking guy comes up and says it, then maybe you did it earlier, and maybe you didn't. I would, if if my friend said this, I would like... I'd slap her in the face. Yeah, I would I would just be so <laughs> mad. I mean, I know Dude. it's all in good fun, but I would be like, no, not at all. I'm going to go home. Now I'm mad. <laughs> but at least she did give her an out. Yes, I for mean, sure. Absolutely. You can't just say that you did it earlier. Mm-hmm. But uh, the no harm, no foul. Yeah, something tells me this is going to come back to bite them all in the ass. Yeah. Many harm, many foul. <laughs> so many harms, so many fouls. <laughs> Well, next we see our trio leave Marcy behind and exit Guero's. The girls are already a little tipsy and Shanna falls on her ass. But we also see the girls are still being watched by our mystery man in the black Chevy Nova, which is now stopped in front of Home Slice Pizza, another famous Austin hotspot. We see inside the car for the first time and see that the driver has photos of the three girls attached to his visor as he pulls it down to utilize the visor's built-in mirror to apply some eye drops. We also see he has a very large scar that runs from forehead to mid-cheek over his left eye. But that's all we get for now, so we'll come back to our mystery man in a bit. By the way, before we move on, the poem that Jungle Julia has her listeners recite to Butterfly is an excerpt of the poem Stopping by the Woods on a Snowy Evening by Robert Frost. It's also a reference to the 70s thriller Telephone, spelled T-E-L-E-F-O-N, in 1977, in which the poem was used as a post-hypnotic signal to activate Russian sleeper agents. That's very interesting. I was wondering while we were watching the movie if that... If it came from anything specific mm. or if it was just from the movie. It's creepy. It, it's very creepy. And I guess here you're either going to get a lap dance from Butterfly or she's going to shoot you in the face. <laughs> Depending on which way this <laughs> poem goes for her. <laughs> well, next we see the party has moved to the Texas Chili Parlor, which is another real restaurant and bar on Lavaca Street in Austin. However, it doesn't have the parking lot and back porch we see in the film that was filmed elsewhere. We can also see another Jungle Julia billboard looming over that fake parking lot. And eagle-eyed viewers who also watched Planet Terror should spot the babysitter twins entering the establishment. They can also be seen in a few of the interior shots at this location as well. However, they have no speaking lines in this movie. They're two of just four people who play the same character in both Death Proof and Robert Rodriguez's Planet Terror. I'll be sure to point out the other two when we get there. 
So inside, our trio has met up with those guys they mention in the car, Dove, Nate, and Omar, who want desperately to hook up with these girls, but are obviously way out of their league. I mean, they can't even get their names right, and if there's one thing all girls named Shanna have in common is that they hate it when people call them Shauna. Remember, it's Shanna Banana, not Shauna Banana. So we have a couple of performers worth mentioning here. One, Dove, is played by famed horror director Eli Roth. He directed Cabin Fever, Hostel, Hostel Part 2, Electric Boogaloo, and The Green Inferno. He's also produced a ton of film and television series in the horror genre, including a fantastic series on Shudder called Eli Roth's History of Horror that I highly recommend. Yeah, that was really good. It's a very well done. Also, fun fact, in 1994, he won a Student Academy Award at NYU for his thesis film titled Restaurant Dogs, which was a parody of Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs. Oh, fun. And here he is, star- you know, starring in a Tarantino film. <laughs> this was a big moment for him. I, I'm sure he was, like, freaking out, though. Uh, he was geeking out. There's another moment uh, that he has with Kurt Russell that we're going to talk about mm-hmm. a little bit yes. later on. That's, <laughs> that's really great. Uh, the other person of note here is Michael Bacall, who plays Omar, He mostly just creepily stares at the girls in the background of the scenes in this movie. Uh, But he has appeared in a couple of other Tarantino films, including Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained. But he's also an extremely successful screenwriter and wrote the screenplays for Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, Plus 21 Jump Street, and its sequel, 22 Jump Street. Just a few small name titles. Yeah. Nothing nothing big. Random. Here, just a guy with this tiny part in this movie, and he's <laughs> this hugely successful screenwriter. <laughs> and the other one is a hugely successful horror director. Whatever. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Tarantino is just like, I'm just going to call a few of my successful friends. No big deal. And we're just going to do this uh, crazy ass movie. Yeah. Just, and that's all this is. You know they had the most fun making this yeah. movie. This is just Tarantino's love letter to Grindhouse Films. Mm-hmm. That's all this is. Yeah. And it's wonderful. Yeah. Well, we're also introduced to another of Tarantino's personal favorite characters, Amy. Uh, she's the jukebox that's used in this film. It's an <laughs> AMI model that Tarantino affectionately pronounces as Amy. And it is Quentin Tarantino's personal jukebox that was trucked to Austin to be used in the film. Even the list of songs on the jukebox's menu was also handwritten by Tarantino himself. One of the songs on the player is You Never Can Tell by Chuck Berry, which is the song that Mia and Vincent dance to in Pulp Fiction. It's the same jukebox that was also seen in the opening diner scene of Natural Born Killers. In fact, Quentin loves this jukebox so much, in the end credits for this very movie, under special thanks, Amy the Jukebox is the first listed. (laughs) (laughs) And she provides the majority of the movie's soundtrack. In fact, this movie has no original score, only pre-recorded titles and themes from other films. I think that's just amazing. It's crazy, Uh, which we get an example of next. Uh, So everyone in the bar is waiting on Lana Frank to show up with their weed hookup. I shouldn't say everyone in the bar. Like the the whole (laughs) bar is just like, hey, when's the weed going to get here? Am I right? We have the alcohol. Who's bringing the weed? Obviously just our little group of six. 
They're they're waiting on old Lana Frank. If I wasn't the group of the six and I was in the bar, I'd be like, hello, you cannot just bring weed for your six. Let's bring it for the whole club or take it home. Yeah, it's like in school when you got caught chewing gum and the teacher's did you bring enough for the whole class? Exactly. Did you bring enough for the whole bar? Did you bring enough weed? Because they do actually end up just going outside and smoking it. Now, keep in mind, this was before we had any legal places in the States that yeah. you could smoke. So yeah. this was all still pretty, you know, rough, uh, yeah, scandalous. The devil's lattice. Scandalous. <laughs> so again, while everyone in the bar <laughs> is waiting on Lana Frank, Julia goes off to a quieter spot to call and check on her ETA. After getting off the phone with her, the jukebox's music fades out and is replaced abruptly with a sappy instrumental ballad as she texts this Christian Simonson guy she's been trying to connect with. Uh, the music here is actually the theme song to the movie Blowout, uh, which stars John Travolta, where he plays a sound recordist who records evidence that proves a car accident was actually murder, which ties into our little movie here about cars and murder. But it, it's just so funny because it's really obvious, you know, when this song comes on. It just seems so abrupt and yeah. weird, it, it, which again is kind of like that whole grindhouse style. Mm-hmm. They would do things like that where songs would be added in at the last minute or replaced and it's it's a little weird, but it's yeah. purposeful. There's yeah. a purpose for it. But again, I feel like just as my first time viewing, it didn't take me out of it. I didn't notice it, that it was a huge transition right, or anything right. like that. Well, up next, Warren, the bar's fictional owner, sends over shots of chartreuse to our group's table and comes over to join them. And here we have our Hitchcock moment as Warren is played by Mr. Quentin Tarantino himself. And yes, for those who might not know, chartreuse is a real liquor. So good they name it a color after it, as Warren says. I've never had it myself, but I know it's French and it's made by monks. I feel like... That's all I need to know. It's supposed to taste sweet, apparently. I would like to partake in the chartreuse. (laughs) I would. Uh, It's both, I guess it's supposed to be good because as Warren says, is that a tasty beverage or is that a tasty beverage? To which I say, I don't know, but I will let you know if it is a tasty beverage when I try it. I want to be able to answer that question for you, Warren. (laughs) I really do. Well, next, Butterfly decides to step outside on the back porch for smoke, and when she does, she notices a familiar black Chevy Nova sitting in the parking lot. We get a little bit better look at it, even though it's now pouring rain, and can see a skull with lightning as the crossbones painted on the hood, plus it has a rubber duck as a hood ornament, which is actually a nod to the rubber duck on the front of Chris Christopherson's truck in the movie Convoy from 1978. And by rubber duck, I mean it's a chrome rubber duck, not an actual (laughs) rubber duck. That would be silly. Although it might have added a different touch to the to the movie, it would have uh, changed the tone completely. I think, yeah, uh, would have made it a dark comedy. I think. <laughs> uh, we also get an Easter egg in the car's license plate, which reads JJZ one zero nine, which was the same license number on Steve McQueen's Mustang in the classic car chase film Bullet. Well, as Butterfly is staring intently at the car, we see someone come up behind her and reach out for her. 
Butterfly whips around, ready to defend herself from her attacker, but it turns out to just be Nate, her possible date, who's just looking to have a makeout session. She agrees, but only for six minutes, but he'll take what he can get, and they're off to his car. Well, back inside, we are finally introduced to our mystery man and predator, Stuntman Mike. And we are introduced to him in the most disgusting way possible, in extreme close-ups of him eating nachos. (laughs) It seems like that should be pretty benign, but when you see all that grease and oil and cheese going in a greasy, oily mouth, and he's licking his lips and his oily fingers... You really just want it to stop. Yeah, yeah. It's disgusting. (laughs) So, of course, here's our boy, Kurt Russell, as our serial killer stuntman, Mike. We've talked about him a lot here in the Dead Zone screening room, both when we covered the horror classic The Thing and the borderline, probably not really horror classic, Big Trouble in Little China. He does have one other creepy credit in the 2015 horror western Bone Tomahawk, which I've never seen. But we do love us some Kurt here in the Dead Zone. Both McReady and Jack Burton are two of my personal favorite characters in film ever. Uh, They're fantastic. And Russell doesn't disappoint here either. You get a sense immediately of exactly who this guy is. He's been in the business, but really minor stuff that mostly people probably don't remember or never heard of. It's enough that people are interested when he says he's a Hollywood stuntman, but not enough that he can pull out any names or titles that would really impress anyone. It's obvious he peaked in the 80s, and now he tries real hard to be relatable to the people he wants to surround himself with, but every year those people keep getting younger and younger, and that relatable gap just gets wider and wider. Gee, doesn't sound familiar at all. Um... (laughs) Even Dove and Omar, who have come up to the bar to order more drinks, take notice of Stuntman Mike and start making fun of him. Dove says he looks like he cut himself shaving, falling out of his time machine. Uh, And the two of them just start laughing. They're basically two young guys making fun of this old dude at this bar. Uh, But this scene is so fantastic, not because of what's going on the scene, but because of the blooper that came out of it. So there's a blooper that shows Eli Roth and Michael Bacall improving these insults at Kurt Russell's expense. And Kurt jokingly throws some nachos at Roth. <laughs> and Roth is such a fan of Kurt's that, and he's, you know, completely starry eyed. He's just like getting to work mm-hmm. with this Hollywood legend and he just turns around and he starts going I'm so sorry I'm so sorry I don't mean it I swear the thing is literally the reason I make horror movies <laughs> <laughs> and it's so cute because he idolizes him so much and here he's got to say all this shitty stuff yeah. about him being old it's just a really great moment that's kind of like a symbolic changing of the guards here's this older Hollywood legend mm-hmm. passing the torch to these two young dipshits who are obviously very talented talented yeah. and have big careers still ahead of them yeah it's such a fantastic moment yeah it really is and I, I really enjoyed seeing that blooper just because I I feel like it's so easy to get lost in movies and, for, and to forget that actors are people too and yeah. that they have idols as well and that they you know get starry-eyed as well just like we do and so to kind of see that really uh raw interaction between them and see Eli kind of get 
uh, you know, um, flustered with himself. Yeah, and, and, and fanboy. Exactly. Yeah. It was it was it was a lot of fun, and and I also want to say it's been fun too, um, kind of getting to see the thing in Big Trouble, and and now this, and getting to see Kurt Russell so much. Um, just because I mean, I've never not been a fan of his or anything like that. I've just it's just never been on my radar to like seek movies out and watch a bunch mm-hmm. of his back to back or anything. Uh, but he really does play characters really well. And, and he does such a good job at doing these kind of um, domineering male um, mm-hmm. characters that, you know, they're, they're charming, but they're also dangerous. And uh, you know, they, they put on a persona that they're strong and that they can, take care of business and everything like that but that's not always the case and I just I really enjoy uh him a lot and I've always you know you've always fangirled about him anytime we've talked about those movies and everything but it's been really nice getting to kind of see those movies and see you react to him but also just getting to enjoy his performances myself because like I said I've just never really sat down analytically and watched these movies and really um I guess like soaked up people's performances in this aspect so it's been fun getting to kind of see um him play different characters back to back to back and see how well he can adapt and I just I really enjoy Kurt Russell overall yeah I've always just been a huge fan of of his work uh and I I'm so glad that that Tarantino has kind of introduced him to to a new audience Mm -hmm. because he certainly is kind of from my generation we we grew up watching him uh, so it's nice that that people are now getting to experience some of the fun that he can bring to these characters. Uh, but as a fan, Tarantino knows, you know, the history behind all these things and, and loves to share all these Easter eggs, you know, like I've been talking about with the cars and everything. But he's done that with Kurt's career as well. And we also get a really nice Easter egg. Uh, that we see as the boys deliver the drinks back to the table and we get a wide shot of the corner where they're all sitting and there's stuff all over the walls. I mean, this this is really this bar here. Uh, and we can see just above Jungle Julia's head hanging on the wall is Kurt Russell's actual tank top that he wore as Jack Burton in Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah, you pointed it out to me and I thought that was really cool. It's amazing. I absolutely love shit like that because you feel like you've been let in on the secret. Yeah. When when you can notice it or when someone else points it out to you and now you know something that other people might not notice, it's like you get to be part of that mm-hmm. fun. Mm-hmm. And I just love shit like that. Yeah, I really enjoy it as well. Well, next, Butterfly and Nate return from their six minutes in heaven, and she explains to the group that she just saw something happen to this blonde chick up at the bar. We never learn what that something was, but we do learn that whatever it was, it left the girl, who we learn is named Pam, stranded, and now she needs a ride home. So she asks Warren if he can vouch for anyone at the bar to give her said ride. To which stuntman Mike slides his keys in front of her and offers his services, meaning if when he's leaving she is too, then she can have a ride. The two then make small talk. We learn that Mike doesn't drink and Pam and Julia used to go to high school together and surprise, surprise, Julia used to be a bit of a bully. Uh, So Pam is played by actress Rose McGowan, who was also in Planet Terror, but she played a completely different character in that movie. 
Most probably remember Rose as Paige Matthews on the long-running series Charmed, or as Courtney in the teen comedy thriller Jawbreaker. But she does have a few other creepy credits, including Devil in the Flesh, Class of 1999, The Original Scream, Phantoms, Rosewood Lane, and The Sound. She also apparently absolutely hates fish. All right. I'm not sure if that means to eat or just in general. Uh, but there you go. That's a fun fact. Somebody's like, hey, I look, learned. I got a new pet. She's like, fuck your pet. <laughs> Get it away from me. <laughs> Do not let it touch me. Why is it looking at me like that? I hate fish. You know that about me. I don't understand why you would show me that god awful pet of yours. I don't know how you missed my t shirt that says I hate fish. The button I wear that says I hate fish. And this sign I carry that says, get your fish away from me. (laughs) But I hate fish. And you have also moved up my shit list. (laughs) Well, next, we finally see the infamous Lana Frank arrive. And the group heads out to the back porch to blaze one up. So Lana is played by stuntwoman and actress Monica Staggs. She's got some other creepy credits under her belt as well, including Devil in the Flesh with co-star Rose McGowan, Species 2, Watchers 4, Devil in the Flesh 2, Electric Boogaloo, Out for Blood, Penny Dreadful, Doomed, and The Clearing. She's also a Tarantino regular as she was Daryl Hannah's stunt double in Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2. And put a pin in that little fun fact, because we're going to talk about it again later. So while the group is partaking of the devil's lettuce, stuntman Mike comes out back and asks Julia if she's famous or something, because a girl had asked her if they could take a picture together. Julia explains how she's a local DJ, and Mike says, Oh yeah, you've got a billboard by Big Kahuna Burger, don't you? To which Julia replies, Yeah, I got one there too, Zatoichi, and points to her giant billboard still looming over the parking lot. Two things to point out here. One, Big Kahuna Burger is a fictional chain that only exists in the Tarantino universe of films. And two, if you miss the brilliant insult doled out by Miss Julia when she called Mike Zatoichi for not noticing her very large and should-be unmissable billboard... Zatoichi is the name of a blind master swordsman in one of Japan's longest-running martial arts film series. I love these, like, very niche things. Like, you just, you have to get it, but you, when you get it... You, you get it, you yeah. You feel like you're in the club. And and that's, that's kind of a Tarantino thing. Yeah. <laughs> you kind of have to be a fan to really get some of these things. And, yeah, it, it, like you said, if you know, you know. And you get to be in the club. <laughs> Well, next, Julia excuses herself and tells Stuntman Mike that if it's all right with him, she and her friends are going to go ahead and get their weed on, and would he care for some? He respectfully declines and then does this crazy almost sneeze. He has this big, huge wind-up, and then nothing happens. It's it's weird. (laughs) And he gets embarrassed by it, and the group is like, what the fuck was that? And he just goes back inside. I, I'm not, I've never been really sure what this was all about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of always likened it maybe to the association that perhaps these crimes are sexual in nature and that when he is with actual women, he can't, he can't follow through. You know, yeah. he, he can't, 
you know, perform his duties sexually kind yeah. of thing. So he's kind of impotent. So it speaks to that. He has this big buildup, you know, he's flirting and does this thing. But then when it comes time to the deal, he can't, he can't do it. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. I'm probably reading way too much into it. Well, back at the bar, Warren and Pam are sitting around with some other patrons, and Warren is trying to think of the titles of movies and shows that Mike has worked on. So Mike goes into his resume, but it's a bunch of shows and actors that none of them have ever heard of, and he kind of gets embarrassed about it. But Pam kind of saves the day by asking him how he got into the business, to which stuntman Mike answers, through my brother. And, of course, Pam has to ask, well, who's your brother? To which stuntman Mike answers, stuntman Bob. Well, back outside, we see the girls are getting ready to head out. And Julia is texting that Christian Simonson guy that he's an asshole because he never showed up. So Julia asks Butterfly if she wants to bring Nate to the lake or if she wants it to be just girls. Butterfly responds, just girls, to which Julia replies, good idea. Someone then hands them a beer, which they both take because free beer. <laughs> Butterfly says thanks as stuntman Mike answers, cheers, Butterfly. Butterfly sits up as Mike continues, the woods are lovely, dark and deep, and I have miles to go before I sleep. Did you hear me, Butterfly? Miles to go before you sleep. Julia steps in. Sorry, stuntman Bert. Mike. He corrects her. Mike, she continues. She already broke off that dance. Mike asks Butterfly if that's true, to which Butterfly shakes her head no. He then asks if he frightens her, and Butterfly nods yes. He asks if it's his scar, to which Butterfly says, no, it's your car. Mike says, sorry, it's my mom's car, which <laughs> makes Butterfly smile. So he says, how about that lap dance? Again, Julia tries to say she already did it, but Mike says he can tell she didn't because she looks slightly wounded. She expected guys to be pestering her all night, but from her look, he can tell nobody pestered her at all. And that kind of hurt her feelings a bit, didn't it? There's few things as fetching as a bruised ego on a beautiful angel. So how about that lap dance? Butterfly tries to give him a rain check, but he eventually convinces her, and she sends him inside to pick out a song from the jukebox. Julia says to her, what about kind of cute, kind of hot, kind of sexy, hysterically funny, but not funny looking guy who you could fuck? Did you not understand? <laughs> so back inside, we hear jukebox Amy erupt with the song Down in Mexico by the Coasters as Butterfly begins her dance. Now, if you had seen this theatrically, there was a cut here and a card that read Missing Real, and you did not get to see this lap dance. And you have never heard more berating at the screen. Oh, come on! You gotta be kidding me! <laughs> People were so disappointed. And that actually used to happen in those old cheap-ass grindhouse movies where they'd get moved around from theater to theater and entire reels would go missing, so they'd just put up a card and hope you didn't notice. But most of the time, the plot was so inconsequential that you could still follow the movie anyway. Luckily for us, the home video version has included the whole thing. And it is something... <laughs> uh, we'll just be respectful as possible and say that Vanessa Ferlito is a very lovely young lady. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
that okay. She's so, spicy. She is a spicy, spicy girl. <laughs> so in the next scene, we see everyone leaving for the night. Julia, Butterfly, Shanna, and Lana Frank head off to Lake LBJ in Shanna's car, while stuntman Mike and Pam will be leaving in Mike's car. When Pam sees the car, she thinks it looks scary and asks if it's safe. Mike says it's better than safe. It's death proof. Oh, ah! And they say the thing. When they say the thing. <laughs> he goes on to explain how this here is a stunt car that's been reinforced every which way, and he could drive this baby into a brick wall doing 125 miles an hour just for the experience. And when Pam goes to get in the car, she sees there's a tractor seat where the passenger seat should be, with no seatbelt, mind you, and a plexiglass box built around the whole thing. She asks, why is your passenger seat in a box? <laughs> to which Mike explains how, in a movie car, sometimes the director wants to put a camera in the passenger seat and shoot the crash from the inside. To which Pam says, you know, when you asked to drive me home, you didn't mention your car didn't have a passenger seat. To which Mike's replies, yeah, well, actually, I didn't ask to drive you home, Pam. You asked me for a ride, and I said yes. We see him then close her door and go around to the driver's side just as Julia and her gang pull out of the lot. We then get an amazing Kurt Russell moment where he breaks the fourth wall and slyly looks at the camera with a shit-eating grin on his face as if to say, <laughs> buckle up, motherfuckers, this is what you came for. It's such a great moment. Mm -hmm. This was done in homage to Burt Reynolds, who used to do the exact same thing in several movies he made involving fast cars. It's so great, though. And you don't care. You don't no. care that he's broken the wall. It doesn't take you out of the movie. Mm -mm. It somehow just enhances your enjoyment yeah. of it. Yeah, it's so quick. And it's so, I mean, it's, I think it's just an affirmation. Like you said, it's it's just telling us what we've came here for is about to happen. And so I think because of that, it's not distracting from the plot in any way or anything like that. So like you said, it doesn't take us out of it or anything. I, I, I enjoyed it as well. Yeah. If anything, it just gets us more excited. Exactly. That's what I mean. Like I felt like it just added to it because it's giving us that kind of giving us a little a little crumb of being like all right it's coming and yeah. we're like all right yeah, here we go <laughs> well once in the car he asks pam which way are you going left or right to which pam answers right mike says oh, that is too bad pam asks why and mike says because it was a 50 50 shot on whether you'd be going left or right you see we're both going left you could have just as easily been going left too and if that was the case, it would have been a while before you'd started getting scared. But since you're going the other way, I'm afraid you're going to have to start getting scared immediately. Mike takes off out of the parking lot, tires squealing on the pavement. Pam starts screaming and banging on the plexiglass surrounding her, calling Mike every name in the book. But Mike ain't putting up with any sass in his car and jerks the wheel left and right, causing Pam's head to slam on both the plexiglass partition and the passenger side window. He then does a spin out, tossing Pam around like a rag doll, nearly knocking her unconscious. Pam, now realizing she's in real trouble, starts pleading with Mike, telling him she knows this is just a joke and if he'll just let her out, she promises she won't tell anyone anything. And up till this moment of the movie, I 
had not really been that impressed by Rose McGowan's performance. Quite frankly, she seemed a little awkward and wooden. But here, in this moment, when she's pleading with him to let her out of the car, she's amazing. Mm -hmm. She does terror very well. Yeah. Mike then interrupts her and says, hey, Pam, remember when I said this car was death proof? Well, that wasn't a lie. This car is 100% death proof. Only to get the benefits of it, honey, you really need to be sitting in my seat. As he slams on the brakes, Pam face planting into the dash, obliterating her face as she falls back onto the floorboard, a broken and bloodied mess. Her final gasps and gurgles heard as Mike slicks his hair back with his hands and says, Now I gotta catch me my other girlfriends. And then he takes their photos off of his visor and throws them out the window as he takes off down the road in an attempt to catch up with Julia and the gang before they make it out to Lake LBJ. And this is our our first little intro here to how fucking nuts Kurt Russell's character is. And it's fucking nuts. When her face plants on that dashboard, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's horrifying. Yeah. It's horrifying. You're just like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there is definitely an audible, uh, oh my God, uh, there was some like, ugh, <laughs> yeah. every time yeah. the, the her head was like hitting the plexiglass. It's just, it's, it's rough. Brutal. It is so brutal. Well, next we are back in Shanna's car, which is being driven by our latest addition to the group, Lana Frank. Shanna and Butterfly are chilling in the back while Julia sits shotgun feet out the window again while she calls her co-worker at the radio station and asks him to play the song Hold Tight by the band Dave D, Dozy, Beaky, Mick, and Titch, which he does, and the girls all get super into it, especially adorable Shanna Banana, who is in the backseat with her cute drum solos and tiny white man's overbite. She's just bebopping along. <laughs> it's absolutely the best. Uh, but the joy isn't going to last too long as we see Stuntman Mike has caught up to them and even passes the car. He drives on up ahead over the hill and spins the car around so it's now facing them head on in the same lane and he turns off his headlights. This is whenever I was like, oh, things are changing. (laughs) Shit is about to get serious. (laughs) He then revs up that engine and as soon as the girl's car tops the hill, he takes off in their direction, reaching top speeds in mere seconds. Meanwhile, back in the girl's car, they continue to bebop away, completely oblivious as to what is about to happen. We then get a shot of the road in front of them and can barely see the silhouette of Mike's car as he's still on course for a head-on collision. Shanna leans in between the two front seats and asks for the stereo to be turned up louder as just before impact, Mike turns on his headlights, lighting up the car just as he hits them, sending Shanna's body flying through the windshield, soaring through the air, landing on the blacktop with a thud. The force of the impact ripping Julia's leg clean off as it too goes flying out the window and onto the road. Mike's car continues on through the girl's car, the front window windshield obliterating Lana's face in the driver's seat as the back tire of Mike's car makes contact with Butterfly's face, driving across it in midair, removing all of her features, as in she does not have a face anymore. You can also hear the Wilhelm scream as the car runs over her face. 
And if you're wondering just how gory this scene is, first let me remind you this is a Quentin Tarantino film who is famous for his gore in movies that are not horror. Second, Tarantino's go-to effects guy since Pulp Fiction has always been Greg Nicotero and KMB Studios. Yeah, that's right, the guy who does all those nasty zombies on The Walking Dead. So yeah, these effects are pretty gory. Mike's car continues through the girl's car, does several flips, lands on its roof, and skids a couple of hundred yards further down the road before finally coming to a stop. I think, um, you know, the scene, it's so fast and everything's so quick and it's so uh, gory and everything, but it's so well done in the aspect of, I love how it was filmed and how each of the um, I guess injuries mm-hmm. uh, are highlighted. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get, you know, the whole impact scene and then we get a reverse and we get to eat, see each character's kind of demise. Um, and you don't always get that in, in horror movies. Right. Sometimes you're just, oh, everybody died in a car accident and it is what it is. And not only do we, I mean, get to see how each person has died, but we also get to highlight Greg Nicotero's work in each shot. We get mm-hmm. to see each gory aspect of each kill and i i think um because really this is our kind of conglomerate of gore in this movie i like the fact that we get to kind of sit in it for a minute and really like i said appreciate and highlight what all went into it because it is fucking bananas and if and if we didn't get that i feel like it would kind of go missed uh, because it is so fast yeah otherwise without the kind of slow down scenes of looking at everything more thoroughly. Yeah, absolutely. I I agree 100%. I love the way that Tarantino structured this film, the whole, you know, showing the impact and you see what happened to the first person and then boop, we go right back to right before the impact. And it it all starts when uh, Mike turns those lights on, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. on his car and lights them up right before he hits them. You know, we see the lights come on and we see the impact. Then you see the lights come on again and you see Shanna go through the window. Then you see the lights come on again and you see Julia's leg fly Mm -hmm, off and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. So, yeah, like you said, you get to experience every one of their gory deaths and it's just glorious yeah glorious detail yeah it is really good i think uh while we were watching it i was sitting there uh taking my notes and i had stopped and i was just like holy shit (laughs) (laughs) yeah it, it it's a long time coming getting up to this point so at this point your audience is ready like we've come here for a horror movie let's get some horror and um we are not disappointed yeah yeah it's so good Well, in the next scene, we see Stuntman Mike has survived and is in the hospital recovering from what would be considered minor injuries. We also see that Dr. Dakota Block is his tending physician, and if you watch Planet Terror, then you know she is another crossover. We then see Texas Rangers Earl and Edgar McGraw, a father and son duo and Tarantino Universe favorites, as they question Dr. Block about Stuntman Mike's condition. We also learn that Earl here is Dr. Block's father, making Edgar her brother. And this scene here is the biggest tie between Planet Terror and Death Proof. Dr. Block's storyline and this hospital play a pretty big role in Planet Terror. But for right now, we just need to know that Earl 100% believes Stuntman Mike killed all those girls on purpose, but the DA says there's no evidence of anything other than a bad accident. 
Earl says every one of them gals was swimming in alcohol and floating on weed, but of course not a drop of alcohol was found in Mike's system. Remember how he explained that he didn't drink, and now we know why. Hell, even witnesses at the bar say the dead girl in his passenger seat was the one who asked him for a ride. So it looks like they've got no choice but to let him go. And if he ever does it again, hope he doesn't do it in Texas. Cut to 14 months later in Lebanon, Tennessee. But before we go, let's talk about these fine people here. So Texas Ranger Earl McGraw here is played by the late Michael Parks, who is a Tarantino favorite. In fact, Tarantino often referred to him as, quote-unquote, the world's greatest living actor and has had him appear in Kill Bill 1 and 2 and Django Unchained. He has quite a few creepy credits under his belt, including The Victors, Nightmare Beach, Sorceress, which stars Linda Blair, From Dust Till Dawn, The Dead One, Planet Terror, Maidenhead, Red State, We Are What We Are, and Tusk. But the real crazy thing is, this is one of four different films where Michael Parks plays this exact same role. The character of Earl McGraw first appeared in Robert Rodriguez's From Dust Till Dawn and was then reprised in Kill Bill Volume 1, Death Proof, and Planet Terror. He did appear in Kill Bill Volume 2, but as a completely different character in that of Esteban Viejo, Bill's sadistic mentor. And of course, James Parks, who is Michael's real-life son, reprises his role as Edgar McGraw, Earl's son and fellow ranger, James is another Tarantino favorite, appearing in Kill Bill 1 and 2, Django Unchained, and The Hateful Eight. And like his father, this is the fourth movie where he portrays the character of Edgar McGraw. He was first introduced in From Dust Till Dawn 2, Texas Blood Money, and then again in Kill Bill 1 and 2 and Death Proof. But he also has a few creepy credits, including Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, Crocodile 2 Death Swamp, the Dark Room, the quirky indie classic Rubber about a homicidal car tire, and Red State. Also, random fun fact, he auditioned for the role of Tommy Doyle in Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers in 1995. Obviously, he didn't get it as that role went to a little-known actor named Paul Rudd. Never heard of him. Mm, either. Paul Rudd. Good luck to him in his career. Hope he does well. Rud, 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 rud. Maybe you can look at him up. <laughs> well, lastly, Dr. Dakota Block here, the daughter of Earl and sister to James, is played by actress Marley Shelton. She has a few other creepy credits as well, including Valentine and Planet Terror. Plus, she played Deputy Judy Hicks in Scream 4, a role she'll be reprising in the highly anticipated fifth movie in the franchise, also titled Just Scream for some reason. I, why did that's the, what the first one was called? That's too confusing. Everyone's going to call it Scream Five, so you might as well just have called it Scream Five. <laughs> Comes out next year. Go see it. Well, also, super duper cool fun fact. This is probably one of my favorite facts ever. I'm excited. Her high school prom date was with her boyfriend at the time, 
Buffy the Vampire Slayer's Nicholas Brendan. He bought her a hundred roses, wore a tux, and drove a black convertible Mustang. She said that, quote, he totally did it right. She got to go to the prom with fucking Xander Harris, and it literally makes me want to cry. It is so sweet. I love it so much. Also, Nicholas was in an independent film that we saw not too long ago that's kind of a mystery horror sci-fi that is really fantastic. I don't know if we've ever recommended it here or not. It's called Coherence. We both really enjoyed it. It's more of a mind fuck per se than a horror, but if you like those kind of mess with your head movies, you'll really enjoy it. Yeah, it is really good. Put that on your watch list. Again, it's called Coherence. But how cool is that that she got to go with Xander? Yeah, no kidding. I want to go to the prom with Xander. (laughs) Make him do the Snoopy dance for me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Are you ready for the second half of your movie? I'm ready. Because it's literally like we're starting over. We've got a whole new cast of characters. Yeah, yeah. So again, it's 14 months later, and we are now in Lebanon, Tennessee. Stuntman Mike has recovered and got himself a new death-proof car. This is a black 1969 Dodge Charger that still has Mike's signature rubber duck hood ornament. However, the skull and crossbones is gone. The car also bears the license plate 938DAN, which is the same license number as the 69 Charger in Dirty Mary Crazy Larry, another famous car movie. We can see that Mike is sitting at a convenience store when a new trio of girls pulls up in their own muscle car, a yellow and black 1972 Ford Mustang. And yes, the yellow and black paint job is a nod to Kill Bill. In fact, if you look closely toward the rear of the vehicle, you see it says Lil Pussy Wagon, a direct reference to the truck the bride steals from Buck at the hospital in Kill Bill. We see two of the girls in the car chatting while the third is lying down in the back seat with her feet sticking out of the window. Look familiar? Yeah, Mike thinks it does too. Our new trio of girls consists of Kim, our driver, Lee, our shotgun passenger, and Abernathy, the girl lounging in the back seat with an eye mask on. Kim heads inside to stock up on supplies while Lee pulls out her headphones to listen to her iPod and Abernathy continues to lounge. So Mike takes his opportunity to get out and get a closer look and pretends to drop his keys so he has to walk by the car to pick them up. And when he does, he runs his finger across Abernathy's feet. It's the worst thing like anybody could ever do ever. It is so fucking creepy i hate it i mean it feels invasive yes so it's so simple but just feels so up in her space yeah oh god it's awful i hate it uh but he just pretends that he uh just brushed him by accident when he was picking up his Mm -hmm. keys it's creepy as fuck this of course rouses abernathy who rips off the eye mask as she sits up and is all that dude touched my feet as mike gets in his car and drives off really aggressively as the girls do what all girls do when guys drive like that they insinuate he has a small penis every time guys Girls do not think it's cool when you drive like that. Only other men who like cars think that's cool. So please stop. (laughs) Just stop. You look like an idiot. (laughs) 
Well, since Abernathy is up, she decides to head inside to hit the ATM. We get some more Tarantino Universe products here, including apple cigarettes and go juice. Plus, when Lee calls Abernathy while she's in the store to ask her to grab a copy of Allure magazine, we hear Abernathy's ringtone is the same as the whistling tune from Twisted Nerve that Quentin Tarantino had Ellie Driver whistle as she entered the hospital in Kill Bill Volume 1. So many crossovers. So many. Welcome to the world of Tarantino. I wonder if, like, I mean, I'm sure somebody has, but, like, I wonder if you sat down and watched, like, all of these back-to-back, like, if if it would be interesting to see, like, all the little tiny Easter eggs in each film. Oh, yes. And people have done it. There's a whole Tarantino wiki you can go to that tells you all the crossover information. Information. Or you can just listen to us, tell you. This is very true. Much more fun that way. (laughs) Instead of doing your own research, boring. Let us do your research for you. Well, after the girls supply up, they head out to the airport to pick up their fourth companion, Zoe. Uh, But first, you know, I got to do some exposition. So for our new group of girls, Abernathy here is played by actress Rosario Dawson. She has a few other creepy credits to her name, including a movie called Rays and Zombieland Double Tap. Plus, she's currently filming Disney's Haunted Mansion, which is based on the attraction of the same name. She did originally have a small role as a nurse in Rob Zombie's The Devil's Rejects, but her character was cut out of the theatrical release. She also co-created the comic book Occult Crimes Task Force, which follows a fictitious group of New York police investigators who patrol a district of New York primarily populated by practitioners of magic. Ooh. So that's cool. That sounds very neat. I would like to read that, please. Well, put it on your TBR. Uh, I think it was just like a one-off series. I don't think it's ongoing. I think it was just like a little short series, but it could be cool. Uh, We also have Kim, who is played by actress Tracy Toms. Some may recognize her as Joanne from the film version of Rent, which also starred Rosario Dawson. But she does have some other creepy credits on her resume, including that movie Rays, which again also stars Rosario Dawson. They follow each other around a lot, I guess. Uh, She was in Fun Size Horror, Volumes 1 and 2. The Watcher, which I think might be based on the story of that family in their house. Remember that story of the mm-hmm. Watcher who used to send them letters? We covered that story on our other podcast, Creepy Caffeine. Uh, that's a creepy one. It's a very creepy story. Uh, and she was also in a film called The Basement. Lastly, we have Lee, played by actress Mary Elizabeth Weinstead. Aside from Scott Pilgrim fighting for her affection, she has several big-name creepy credits, including The Ring 2, Electric Boogaloo, Final Destination 3, the 2006 remake of Black Christmas, the 2011 prequel to The Thing, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, and 10 Cloverfield Lane. Also, how crazy is it that in this movie we have Kurt Russell, who was the top-billed actor in The Thing, and then we have Mary Elizabeth, who was the top-billed actress in The Thing prequel 29 years later. That's so fun. Again, everything It's connected. Everything is connected. Why don't you people see this? (laughs) (laughs) Put on your tinfoil hats now. They're coming for us. (laughs) 
So back at that airport, again, we see the girls have picked up their friend Zoe, who's in from out of town. The premise here is that all of these girls are in the industry and they're all in town working on a movie that's being filmed there. Lee is an actress in the movie, and apparently a very famous one. Kim is a stunt woman and driver for the film. Abernathy does makeup, and Zoe is another stunt woman in town from New Zealand. Never call a Kiwi an Aussie, and a very close friend of Abernathy and Kim's. So Zoe asks for all the gossip, and we learn that Lee has been dating The Rock. Well, not The Real Rock. He's an electrician named Bruce, and he just looks like The Rock. However, this is just another random Tarantino nod because in the closing credits of Kill Bill Volume 2, in the grip section, one of the names of the grips is Bruce Del Castillo, nicknamed The Rock. He does the same thing in another story where supposedly Abernathy has been dating the director of the film they've been working on named Cecil Evans. This is actually a nod to Cecil D. Evans, the transportation coordinator for Death Proof and Planet Terror. He then does it a third time (laughs) when it's mentioned that the director cheated on Abernathy with the stand-in for Daryl Hannah. This is yet another nod, this time to actress and stuntwoman Monica Staggs, who played Lana Franks in this movie. She was Daryl Hannah's stand-in in Kill Bill 1 and 2. Remember, I told you to put a pin in that fun fact. I put my pin in it. She put a pin on it, and it paid off. (laughs) (laughs) And so now you're all caught up. And so, again, that's just another thing that Tarantino does is he creates these stories, but he throws these little Easter eggs in of these people who he's worked with, you know, kind of as a funny nod to them. Mm -hmm. But it's no one you've ever heard of. So if I hadn't told you that these were actual people, you'd never know. Yeah. But I, I, again, I just think that's cool that he just enjoys so much working with these people and he really does consider them a family that he'll just do this little stuff. And who knows, your name will show up in one of his movies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that's cool from their point of view too, kind of getting to see the movie afterwards or whatever and just kind of getting to show people and be like, look, he says my name here or whatever, you know, just (laughs) something like that. Yeah, I think that's really fun. Absolutely. And I suppose I should go ahead and introduce Zoe Bell. So she is being played by real actress and stuntwoman Zoe Bell herself, as mentioned in the wiki. She's basically just playing herself. Uh, but she, she does, does it well. And she, she does. And, and you'd think that'd be pretty easy. Uh, but acting, not, not so much. Even when you're playing yourself. I couldn't do it. When someone gives you words to say, not so easy. <laughs> Well, she has a few other creepy credits to her name, including Planet Terror, Hansel and Gretel, Witch Hunters, uh, That Ray's Movie, which also stars Rosario Dawson and Tracy Toms. I mean, everybody was just in that movie. I wasn't. Apparently, it's about, I I think it's a women's prison, and they're all forced to fight against each other. Mm -hmm. It sounds like something I would absolutely love. I was in there fighting the whole movie. Were you? You were there? Yeah, I, I was in it. You just didn't remember the name? Mm -hmm. it happens well you're so busy i uh, got knocked in the head a couple oh wow then do you need to sit down (laughs) can i get you some water please okay (laughs) you just relax take it easy you'll be fine uh uh, (laughs) she was also in a movie called freshwater and james wan's latest malignant Uh, But she also did some creepy credit stunt work in the films Devil's Den, Penny Dreadful, The Collector, 
and the final destination, which I think was the fourth one in the franchise. Well, next, our group of four stop at a diner to eat. Uh, It's here that we get another Tarantino trademark and a long take. This scene of dialogue was done in one continuous take that lasts for eight minutes and seven seconds. The camera never cuts away. It doesn't feel like that long, though. It doesn't. Because you had kind of like warned me. Well, not warned me. I mean, but you were, you know... preemptively you're like there's gonna be a lot of dialogue in this movie and everything that's not something that's ever really bothered me so i wasn't like super hesitant about that going in but you did talk about you know these one shots and or excuse me these one takes um and and you were you'd mentioned you know here's this one as we were coming up on it and it didn't feel like eight minutes at all like you know i'm engaged in the conversation and everything like that and it was not long at all before we were moving on. And I f- remember as we're transitioning to the next scene thinking like, oh, okay, that's already over. Got it. And we're just going on. So it doesn't, it, eight minutes theoretically kind of sounds like a long time for us to be sitting here sure. talking or listening to somebody talk, but it doesn't mm-hmm. feel that way at all. Yeah. Again, like, like, like we said earlier, it just really feels organic and natural and like you're just watching a vlog that someone took of them going to this diner. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's this scene is mostly just an opportunity for uh, some character building before our picture is literally just going to go balls to the wall car chase. Yeah. Uh, So here we do learn about Zoe's prowess and expertise as a stunt performer. She's even earned herself the title of Zoe the cat since she always seems to land on her feet. We also learn that Kim carries a pistol named Roscoe so she can do her laundry at midnight Uh, And that while Zoe's in town, someone just so happens to be selling a 1970 Dodge Challenger with a white paint job, which just so happens to be the same make, model, and color of a car used in the film Vanishing Point, another very famous car chase movie. And so while she's in America and being a huge fan of the movie, Zoe wants to test drive it. And so they head out to the property advertising the car for sale. But before we go, it's worth mentioning that our antagonist, stuntman Mike himself, is sitting in the restaurant for the duration of this entire scene. He can be seen in the background at the counter anytime the camera swings in that direction. It's so creepy. It's very creepy. Well, next we see the ladies arrive at the property and are greeted by good old boy Jasper... Now, supposedly this is the same character that tried to sexually assault the bride when she wakes up uh, from a coma in Kill Bill Volume 1. And he is played by the same actor, Jonathan Lafran, but here his name is Jasper, and in Kill Bill he was credited as just the trucker, and we do know that he didn't survive that encounter. So I'm not actually sure if that's correct, but I thought I'd mention it just because... It's what I do. Maybe it's a ghost. But also, randomly, this actor, Jonathan Lufferin, is Adam Sandler's personal assistant on most of Sandler's movies. In fact, Sandler often gives him small roles in his films, so he's been in like 20 different Adam Sandler movies. I'm going to start just finding small jobs for my friends at my work just so I can start (laughs) working with people that I really want to work with every day. Just be like, yeah, today today I need you to read every word I type. <laughs> I know it seems silly, but believe me, it will be fun. It will be fun. 
But what a random thing. It is so random. But I just, I love that he just keeps making it happen for him. Yeah. Let's, it's, hey, I'm doing another one. You coming? <laughs> sure. What time? I'll be there. <laughs> Anywho, our ladies arrive at the property and ask about the Dodge Challenger. We get another Tarantino trademark, which is a shot of characters taken from inside the trunk of a car. Only here it's from under the hood of a car as Zoe and Kim check out the engine of the Challenger. Zoe pulls Kim aside and explains that the real reason they're here is because Zoe doesn't just want to test drive the Dodge Challenger. She wants to perform something called ship's mast on the Dodge Challenger, which we're not exactly sure what the hell that is at this point. But judging by Kim's reaction, it's pretty fucking dangerous. Yeah, I feel like if a, a stunt person is saying that they want to do something that's not normal, like driving, it, we can just go ahead and assume it's probably scary. <laughs> yeah. If one stunt person says to the other one, no, don't do that. It's dangerous. Uh, it's probably dangerous. Yeah. 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 Not something you'll catch me doing. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> well, finally, after some begging and indentured promises, Kim agrees to drive for Zoe if they can get Jasper to let them take the car for a test drive alone. So Kim and Zoe go tell Abernathy the plan and that she and Lee are to wait here. But Abernathy is all, hell no, you're not leaving my ass here on Tobacco Road while you all go off and have scary stuntwoman fun without me. I will convince Jasper to let us take out the car and I will come with you. Which she does convince Jasper by telling him that Lee, who has fallen asleep in a chair outside Jasper's barn, is actually a porn star and he can have some fun getting to know her while they're gone. This actually makes you an asshole friend, Abernathy. But I understand we have a movie to uh, get to, so we'll move past it. <laughs> Well, as the girls get ready to leave the property, they pull up next to a sleeping Lee, and Kim says, Hey, good looking. Be back to pick you up later. And old folks like me may remember this line from an old commercial in the 70s for a product called Mr. Microphone. I wanted those things so damn bad. They sound very cool. I mean, you know, by today's standards, probably not. <laughs> but at the time, basically, it was, it kind of worked the same premise as a drive in where you could tune in to the uh, signal of the microphone, and so therefore you could hear yourself over any radio. Yeah, uh, It's, uh, you know, karaoke before there was karaoke. I think it sounds pretty fancy. Mm. wonder if we can get our hands on one. I want to buy it right now. <laughs> we could podcast with it. <laughs> well, next, our now trio drives to a stretch of mostly abandoned back roads, and Kim and Zoe prepare while poor Abernathy still doesn't have a clue as to what they're about to do. So Zoe puts on some gloves and takes off her belt. She then borrows Abernathy's belt, and then her and Kim attach each of the belts to each of the door frames on the car. Kim and Zoe hop back in, and it's time to play. So Kim punches the gas, and we are off. And from this point on, once this car takes off, for the next 20 minutes and 11 seconds, it is nonstop car chase action. I'm going to do my best to describe what happens, but just know I am not doing this justice. This, this should be seen with your own eye holes. I feel like any sort of car chasing scene, it's just better to see with your eye holes. Well, you sure. just got to see it. It's no fun if I just describe it, but I'm going to do it anyway. 
And it's going to still be good. Oh, I'm we, excited. I'm excited. I'm still going to have fun in my head. <laughs> <laughs> so Kim takes off and quickly gets the car up to speed. And by up to speed, I mean everything I'm describing to you is happening at speeds between 80 and 100 miles per hour. All of the stunt work was performed practically with no CGI. So Zoe wraps the belt attached to the door frame of the passenger side door around her hand, turns back to Abernathy in the back seat and says, check this out. Zoe then proceeds to climb out the passenger side window and climbs onto the car's roof. Then from outside the car, she wraps the belt attached to the door frame on the driver's side door around her left hand and then slides down the windshield on her butt until she's positioned on the hood of the car, effectively becoming the quote unquote ship's mast of the car. Again, this is really Zoe Bell out on the hood of this car going over 80 miles an hour. Kim, trying very hard to concentrate, tells Abernathy to move up to the front seat, which she does. We then get one of my favorite shots in this whole movie where we get a close-up of Abernathy looking out the windshield at the craziness of what's happening. She's scared by it, but these are her friends and this is what they do and she can see they're having fun. So she embraces it and gives in to it and we can see the moment on her face as her fear is slowly replaced by a grin and she starts having a hell of a good time. It is played so well by Rosario Dawson. It is such a subtle thing, but yet speaks volumes as to how her character is affected by what's going on. So, as a side note, Tarantino has said that Rosario really did end up enjoying riding in the cars, so much so that she asked if she could be in the car even in the scenes where she couldn't be seen in the shot. That would 100% be me. Oh, Absolutely. I, I think this would be a blast. It would be so fun. I would never be in Zoe Bell's position, <laughs> but I sure as hell would sit in the backseat. Oh, yeah. Also, in this moment, I really think Abernathy represents the audience here because we, too, are horrified by what we're seeing. But yet we are amazed by the stunt and we're safe at home. So we, too, can put aside our fear and just enjoy the hell out of the moment. But moments don't last, and soon we see that they are being watched by one stuntman, Mike. And he likes what he sees. So he gets in his car and takes off to catch up with the new objects of his affection. Mike punches the gas and gains ground. Abernathy and Kim both hear his engine and see him coming right before he slams into the back of them. Kim temporarily loses control of the car, but manages to ride it before going off the road. Mike backs off a bit, but then guns it again as the girls scream and try to warn Zoe, who is still strapped to the hood of the car. Mike slams into them again, nearly causing Zoe to slide off the side. Mike then pulls up beside them and attempts to push them off the road. This causes Zoe to flip over so that now she's on her belly and facing the windshield. She's clearly upset and scared, as is Kim, who's having difficulty seeing to drive because Zoe keeps getting in her way because she's on the hood of a fucking car. I mean, you're going to be in the way a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> Well, Mike keeps slamming into them repeatedly, at one point causing Kim to spin out. She regains control of the car, but she is now headed in the opposite direction as Mike has to turn around to keep up with her, both cars barely missing each other. 
Mike catches up with the car again, this time slamming into the driver's side and spinning Zoe around on the hood so that she's still on her belly, but her head is now pointed at the front of the car. Mike keeps slamming into the car until Zoe is barely hanging on, her hands now down on the front bumper. But all of a sudden, a pickup truck comes barreling at them in the opposite lane. He and Mike have to swerve out of the way in order to miss each other, the pickup flipping over multiple times while Mike temporarily drives through a field before maneuvering his way back to the road. He speeds back up and once again makes contact with the Challenger, sending it spinning out of control as Zoe finally cannot hold on any longer, loses her grip, and goes flying off the hood as both cars come to a stop. Mike starts laughing, gets out of his car, turns to the Challenger, opens his arms wide, and says, Ladies, that was fun. Well... Adios, but before his lunatic ass can get back in his car, a shot rings out and we see blood spurt out of Mike's left bicep. Remember I told you that Kim was packing heat and she has brought Roscoe out to play. She fires another shot at Mike that misses, but it does send him cowering back into his car and he takes off driving, Kim continuing to fire after him until her rounds have all been spent." Whoa, it is. Guys, we're only halfway done. It's intense. This is just a momentary lull in the excitement while Kim and Abernathy mourn their friend. They're left sitting defeated in the Challenger, staring off into the brush in front of them, weeping and mourning the loss of Zoe. Not only defeated, but like catching their breath because this whole thing is just bonkers. Like, it's so fast. It is crazy. Again, yeah. again, still not doing it justice. <laughs> that was 10 minutes worth of craziness driving and stunts. And uh, I mean, uh, scratch the surface. Barely. Yeah. <laughs> Barely. Well, all of a sudden we see movement in the brush as someone jumps up and says, I'm okay. It's fucking Zoe the cat, always landing on her feet. This damn moment right here, it's so good. It's so good. I mean, the audience, they're defeated as well. Mike has won again. You think we've lost Zoe, who's just amazing, has done all this crazy stuff. And surprise, (laughs) she is still alive and just fine. So she comes up to the car and she's like, so where's the maniac? And Kim's all, I shot him in his punk ass sped off. Zoe says, you want to go get him? To which Kim answers, oh, hell yeah. She then turns to Abernathy and says, honey, I think you might want to get out. To which Abernathy says, fuck that shit. Let's kill this bastard. (laughs) And they're all like, well, all right, bitch, let's go. (laughs) So Zoe grabs a large rusty pipe from the side of the road, mounts the passenger door like a horse, and Kim takes off down the road with Zoe hanging out the side with her pipe like she's going to javelin him at a medieval fair. Meanwhile, Mike has found somewhere to pull over so he can tend to his wound. He's crying like a pussy baby and is all, Why me? Why? (laughs) 
He grabs a bottle of alcohol from the glove compartment and takes a few swigs before psyching himself up to pour some over the gunshot, which just makes him scream and cry more. He takes another swig as he wonders what the hell he's going to do now. But oopsie, time is up. And Kim and the Challenger come blazing in and slam into the back of the Charger. Zoe hops out and runs over to Mike and starts wailing on him and his car with that huge pipe. But Mike manages to get the car started and takes off. But Kim is able to swing around and Zoe jumps back in the Challenger without skipping a beat and the chase is back on. Only now, Stuntman. And Mike finds himself in the hot seat. So Kim quickly closes the distance and starts repeatedly ramming Mike's car, saying, You don't like it up the ass, do you, you redneck lunatic bastard? I'm the horniest motherfucker on the road, and you know I can't let you go without tapping that ass one more Time as the two cars hit a dirt ramp, collide midair, and slam down amid traffic on the interstate. The music comes up and a proper car chase ensues. We see a motorcyclist slamming into a building as the two cars start weaving in and out of other drivers. A couple of SUVs get nudged out of the way and Mike makes a U-turn in the median in an effort to get away. But Kim stays right on his heels. Eventually she makes her way up next to him and Mike actually tries to apologize. He's all, I'm sorry, I was just playing around. And the girls are like, oh, he was just playing around. As they start <laughs> laughing and then Kim says, well, I ain't playing with you. As she slams into his car and pushes him to the side of the road, forcing him to drive in the dirt. Zoe then asks him, hey, what's your sign? Right before they force him to crash through a drive-in theater sign. A sign, by the way, that is advertising the film Scary Movie 4 and Wolf Creek. Wolf Creek just so happens to be one of Tarantino's favorite horror movies, so much so that he considered offering the role of stuntman Mike to John Gerard, who plays the main antagonist in that movie. It also happens to be the movie we're covering next week. So be sure and tune in for that one. But back in this movie, the sign did nothing to slow Mike down, and Kim and the girls are still in pursuit. Mike finally pulls a move and slams on his brakes, which causes Kim to swerve off the road. Mike then believes he's lost them and can finally start to relax. But the camera pulls back to reveal that the girls are still able to follow him. They're just now on a road that's running parallel and higher than him, so he just can't see them. We cut to the girl's car who are watching Mike on the road below them. Kim starts to hope out loud that the access road they're on doesn't dead end and that they'll be able to get back on the main road and starts chanting, please don't dead end, please don't dead end, to which both Zoe and Abernathy both start chanting as well. Please Please don't don't dead end, end. please Please don't don't dead end. end. And then they see it. The roads are going to meet back up. And when they do, Kim performs a pit maneuver on Mike's car, sending him spiraling out of control, causing the car to roll over twice before coming to a stop on the side of the road. Kim brings the Challenger to a controlled stop and the girls get out and approach the Charger. We hear Mike screaming like a 12-year-old girl. The ladies get to him and he's pleading with them for help, saying, Be careful, I think my arm is broken. Bitch, these ladies don't give a shit about your arm! As they pull his broken ass out of the car, stand him up and proceed to beat the shit out of him. 
We literally watched them take turns punching him a total of 39 times. Yes, I counted before Zoe sends him to the ground with a roundhouse kick to the face as the girls cheer and raise their hands in victory. Hard cut to black roll credits. It's absolutely amazing. Oh, but wait. Tarantino gives us one final money shot as we cut back to the scene and Abernathy goes over, swings her leg high in the air and brings her heel hard right down on Mike's face, caving it in. Hard cut back to black, roll credits for real. Oh my God. This, this movie, this movie is crazy. It's a wild ride. It's high intensity. I, I was not wearing my seatbelt. I was not prepared. <laughs> it's, it's danger. It's danger time. It's the danger zone. It's so much. It's so much. It's so good. I just, oh my goodness. And of course, I cannot talk about this movie and not mention the stunt performers. Outside of Zoe Bell's outlandish craziness, you have some of the biggest names in Hollywood when it comes to the world of stunts. John Casino, Clay Cullen, Buddy Joe Hooker, Tracy Keen Dashnaw, Steve Davison, Charlie Estep, just to name a few, all under the direction of stunt coordinator Jeff Dashnaw. They did an amazing job and pulled off some of the most incredible shit on wheels I have ever seen. Pure bananas. Balls to the wall. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how else to describe it. It really is something to behold. It really is. This whole movie, it's just so crazy that it, it, it doesn't feel nearly as long as it, as it is at all. Just because even during the dialogue parts, you're, you're locked in, engaged, ready for the whole thing. That The dialogue parts never seem as long as they are. And, and the chase scenes aren't long enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd think, wow, 20 minutes, that's that's a long time. No, it's over in a freaking flash. Yeah, it is. It's just, it's so, like you said, balls to the wall that you never really have enough time to even like stop and look at the clock and think to yourself, wow, this has been going on because you're just honed in on, on everything that's going on, which is just pure insanity. Yeah, yeah. It it almost kind of feels like, you know, I, I made this comment, are you ready for the second half of this movie? Because it, it really almost does feel like two completely separate movies. Yeah, yeah. You know, with whole different casts and, and whatnot. But it, it's like the whole first half is this slow burn that leads up to this amazing crash scene. Yeah. And then we turn around and start all over. But it, it it's not like you're like, oh my God, now we got to start all over again. Yeah. You just... It just keeps going and you're happy for it. You're like, yay, more people. Yeah. <laughs> Keep them coming. You know, and it's just, it's so good. It's so good. so good. And I cannot speak enough about the talent of Zoe Bell. She's just incredible. She really is. She pulled out all the stops and I'm thankful for it. Yeah, this movie is just a, such a fun ride and over way too soon. It really is. It's one of those that, I mean, like I kind of mentioned off the top that like, I I didn't want the movie to be over. And whenever we were watching it and it was over, I was ready to rewatch it because I just wanted to be back in the conversations with those people and back in the car scenes with those people. And I just really enjoyed the whole 
world that we got to experience in this movie, even even for a small period of time. It was just, there was so much detail packed into some, such a small window that I was like, well, surely there's stuff that I missed. <laughs> so I wanted to go back and, and watch it again. Just, you know, even if there wasn't anything I missed, like I said, just to simply be there and, and enjoy it and hear these people's conversations and everything. I just feel like it, it was such a good time the first time around that I was like, sign me up for more please <laughs> yeah absolutely and, and, you know i i think that's one of the things that that makes tarantino a master storyteller is is the fact that especially with his characters he's he leaves you wanting more time with them you know you just enjoy them so much that you're just like um there's a chapter two right we, we, <laughs> we can come back and see them again so well we got to get to some prompts we do we got some prompts to do. We got some prompts to do. So, what did you have for your popcorn spiller? So, for my popcorn spiller, I actually had the first car scene uh, that we had uh, just because it was so intense and it was like our first kind of intro scene to kind of the madness that is Stuntman Mike and, and everything like that. And it was our first kind of big gore scene I guess and, and and it's kind of tame in comparison to the other big gore scene later on but even still you mean the scene with Rose McGowan yes. in the car oh yes. yeah yeah when he puts her in the car yeah yeah. It's very intense. So that was that was my popcorn spiller just like I said because it, it it's kind of the kind of crux that this whole movie, you know, kind of spins on and, and if it wasn't for kind of this first half which I really to me read more like just our just an intro to to Mike now now we're introduced to a lot of characters the first half of the movie Mm -hmm. but the whole point of the first half of the movie is just to show us who Mike is and how insane and how insane he is yeah Uh, and then our second half I think is where we're really meant to kind of fall in love with these characters and kind of see how they can be strong and and everything like that but this scene alone, it's just, it's so fucking intense. And it's one of those that it's very short lived. I mean, he's, it's just a couple of face slammings into, you know, the plexiglass and into the dashboard, but that's all I need. That's all I need to know that he's plenty (laughs) insane. Yeah. Because up to this point, you know, he's been kind of quite charming. I mean, he's creepy. He's creepy for sure. Don't, don't get it twisted. Uh, He'll creep you out, but he's still just been like this charming guy Mm -hmm. and Butterfly certainly kind of falls for him and, and he's, there's something about him. And so, yeah, you really don't, although we know from the synopsis that Mm -hmm. this guy's supposed to be a serial killer, we don't get the sense of how you know, just nucking futz he is mm-hmm. until Rose McGowan or Pam gets in that car and, uh, you know, she she's going the wrong way. Yeah. <laughs> so she has to start getting scared real quick. So, yeah. yeah, it's it's a it's a good introduction to the depths of his depravity. Yeah. If I had popcorn, I don't even know if I would have sp- spilled it I really think I would have just like set it down and been like okay I'm done eating I really need to just focus on this movie I cannot do anything else but focus on this movie yeah it's it's something <laughs> so what did you have for your answer uh I went with uh the very last scene in this entire movie when we come back from the credits and we have that last little added extra where we see Abernathy just cave Mike's head in 
It was so unexpected because you literally think that this movie is over. Yeah. The girls do their triumphant, yeah, we cut to the credits. So when it comes back and, and we have this moment again and we get this, I mean, she caves his face in. Yeah. We watch her cave his face in. It's like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really unexpected. And I just remember in the theater just kind of being like, holy shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it, it was a pretty good one. Yeah, that is a really good moment. Especially, like you said, for the very last final ending scene. It's oh, like yeah. a last high five <laughs> to all of us. A little something to remember, Mike, by <laughs> his head smushed. So who ended up being your scene stealer? 100% Zoe Bell. Yeah, me I too. just, you cannot take your eyes off her the entire time because you're just in awe of what she's doing. Yeah, yeah. I, I wrote, that, wrote that down as well. Uh, I did notate that. I really just enjoyed um, the whole cast overall. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think just be, for me, being introduced to her for the first time in this movie and in her playing herself yeah i really was just in awe, in awe of her acting especially because you know this isn't something that she normally does being in front of the camera that in that way um but also just of course just being amazed by her yeah her stunt work yeah absolutely i mean you can certainly tell she's not the best actress in the world but she, yeah she did perfectly fine mm-hmm. and and yeah you just you have to show mad respect for this girl and yeah. what she's able to do. Now, I did say that there was no CGI used uh, during those scenes. I, I did want to clarify that, yes, that is Zoe Bell. You are 100% seeing her. They did not add anything as in they did not make a computerized Zoe Bell. What you're seeing, those are all people driving those cars. Those are all those actual cars, all the real studs. The only thing I believe that they did was there was an additional safety uh, wire that she was attached to around uh, her waist. Mm -hmm. And I believe they had to remove that. You could see it in a couple of shots. Yeah. So I just didn't want anyone coming back and say, oh, you said they didn't use CGI. (laughs) You filthy liar. So that's the only CGI that would have been used. But other than that, yes, it's 100% her, all these car stunts. It's crazy. It's amazing. crazy. It's amazing. Crazy, amazing. All right. Well, since we both had the same scene stiller, what'd you have for your gorgasm? Uh, so my gorgasm, we got to harken back to our, our big gore scene here. Uh, and mine was, was the leg chop situation. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's just, and I think it's because it really, they did a, such a kick-ass job making it look fucking realistic. Like, As it's flying through the air? Yes. yes, and the way it like lands on the ground, I mean, it looks like a dead leg. It just fucking look, <laughs> wa- looks wild how it like hits the ground and bounces a little. It just, it's almost actually wobbling yes, in midair. Yeah, yeah that's what I mean. Like, it's it. very, yeah. very realistic, and it's, it's just well done, and how... Uh, they executed is just fucking wild. That that was I, the one for sure that got me to audibly say, "Oh shit!" out loud. So yeah, yeah it was it was it's top tier. It's really good. <laughs> it is really good. It's that Greg Nicotero work. All of it was really fantastic. I had a toss up between two, and one of them was the leg. The other one, it's Butterfly's face being obliterated by a fucking tire. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I mean. (laughs) It just rides right over her face. And we watch every bit of this tire spin out on her face. You just, where else do you see that? It's wild. It's 
horrifying <laughs> in the best way possible. <laughs> so great. Yeah, and that's one thing that, I mean, I just keep saying, that even though it's a small amount of gore, it's it goes hard in the fucking paint. Yeah, it's it pays off. You are not disappointed. <laughs> so who was your memorable mortality? You know, I think it has to be Mike. Just because yeah. by the end of the movie, you're so happy he finally got what's coming to him. Yeah. You know, he's just been such a sleazeball and just, you know, such an asshole the whole time. And you're just like, fucking back off. <laughs> <laughs> Get a hobby other than cars. <laughs> Go cross stitch or something. So, yeah, finally, when he gets his just desserts, you're you, too, are raising your hands in victory with yeah. those girls at the end. After you you're cheering them on. You're watching this guy get his ass kicked and you're just so gleefully happy. Yeah. What about you? What's yours? Well, I actually ended up picking who you picked for your Gorgasm, yeah. which was which was Butterfly. And it was, it was for that exact situation. Mm-hmm. And I think it was kind of me cheating a little bit because I was actually in the same conundrum you were as far as the Gorgasm. Yeah. Trying to pick between the two. And uh, I ended up kind of switching it up and using it for the memorable mortality. But yeah, it's just an iconic crazy ass scene that car riding over her face i had to include it somewhere so yeah (laughs) Yeah, how can you not you cannot talk about this movie without bringing it up there's a lot of moments like that there's a lot of things that you say you cannot talk about this movie without bringing that up and there are just so many crazy iconic things that happen in this movie and yeah and i just i love it it's so good and you know in Tarantino's filmography, and, and I think I think I mentioned this in one of the uh, reviews about this particular film. You know, this is not considered one of his best films. In in fact, Tarantino himself has said that he believes that Death Proof is the worst film he's ever made. But in the same breath, he says, "If that's the worst I ever do, I'll take it." Yeah, meaning. Yeah, this is probably not my best film, but he's still really proud of it. Yeah. And he should be. Yeah. I think this film is amazing, good fun. Yeah, that's exactly the best way to describe it. It's just a fun movie. Like, I feel like, I mean, if you go in, into it with the same frame of mind that I did, that it's just, it's going to be a, a romper, gory type of time, then that's all. I mean, you can't go into it taking it seriously. Oh, yeah. I feel like that's that's generally a good portion of horror. Yeah, absolutely. Is is you just don't go into it taking it seriously. You're yeah. going to go in, you're going to see uh, a bunch of blood, a bunch of, you know, murders and silliness, and you're just going to have fun with it. Yeah. None of it's real. We're all safe. Bring on the next. Yeah. Wild movie. It's a wild movie. I'm so glad I finally saw it. Well, I am so glad that you enjoyed it. I, I always get really nervous showing people movies that I really enjoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, not because I'm worried they're not going to enjoy it. I like a lot of things that other people don't don't enjoy. But I just want so much to express to people what it is that yeah. I enjoy about it. Yeah. And if you can at least see that, you still don't have to like it. But still, just acknowledge yeah that i'm telling you it's pretty cool yeah <laughs> and we're fine <laughs> that's all <laughs> but i i am glad that you uh enjoy it i always love when when we have a really good time watching movies together and when it's one of my favorites that just makes it even better so thank you for watching it with me and thank you for saying nice things about it <laughs> <laughs> i 
I really enjoyed it. And like I said, it was it was really a surprise because I didn't know much about it going into it. I didn't know what to expect as far as the gore going into it. I, I really just kind of knew the basics from what you told me that it was just a crazy car chase movie. And I was like, perfect. That goes with our theme. Well, yep. I'll put it on the list. <laughs> and so, yeah, it was, it was a huge surprise to me. And I, I'm glad that we have a, a new movie to add to the vault. Yeah, absolutely. It's going in the vault. I, I guess we <laughs> skipped over that because we both uh, kind of seem pretty positive about it. But yeah, uh, Dead Zoner Vault going in the vault all the way. Had it in the vault before I even had a podcast. <laughs> Uh, and, and, you know, I, I, I know Tarantino is not everyone's cup of tea, but I hope at least uh, we pique some people's interest and maybe they'll at least give it a second chance. Make yeah. it sound interesting, those who haven't checked it out. And, and I hope you like it. We just hope you like it. We like you. We like you a lot. <laughs> so keep doing that. Keep being cool. <laughs> keep on keeping on. You know, you're doing the thing and you're doing it well. <laughs> We like your thing. Keep doing it. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> well, that's going to do it for us. Episode 34 is... In the Can. In the Can. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Dead Zone Drive-In on your favorite listening platform. And if you're looking for a way to support us, we would be so grateful you would leave a rating and or review and if you screenshot that review and send it to us we're gonna send you your very own dead zone drive-in sticker for free that's no monies honey you can find us on facebook instagram and twitter or you can email us at deadzonedrivein at gmail.com and if you want to reach us by snail mail our address is p.o box 12665 oklahoma city oklahoma 73157 if you want to hang out with us and fellow late night weirdos check out the show notes for links to our socials and our facebook group the dead zone drive-in discussion room also if you haven't already be sure to check out our letterboxd link down in the show notes where i track all the horror we watch inside and outside of the screening room and lastly, for next week's screening, just as Whitney mentioned earlier, we'll be heading down under for the 2005 Australian horror film Wolf Creek. So if you want to check out that trailer, don't worry, we've got you. The link is also down in the show notes. And a big thank you to our house band Slime and the Maggot Boob. They play a mean game of strip mahjong. It was a little bit weird, but I had fun. Also, has anyone seen my socks? I have one. Oh, I don't know where the other one is. Appropriate. <laughs> And remember, if you're looking for the Dead Zone and want to join us for a weekend screening, if you've listened to this episode in its entirety, you'll have been provided with all the information you need. Don't forget your tickets. Good night, folks, and please buckle up. We'll be waiting for you. Remember, it's Shauna Banana, not Shanna. No. <laughs> I fucked it up. Remember, it's Shauna Banana, not Shauna Banana. So, fuck off. Remember, it's Strawberry Bobberry, not Blueberry Pooberry. Uh, excuse me, remember my name is Bapple Bapple? It's Helen Melon. Helen Melon. <laughs> that would be amazing, actually. Oh, now I want to meet a Helen Mellon. Hello? Is this Helen Mellon? I used to have a great Aunt Helen. We never called her Helen Mellon, though. She probably would have liked it. She was fun. Taught us how to disco dance. I thought you, said, I thought you were going to say she probably would have loved it. She loved melons. I was like, well, yeah, that sounds pretty apropos. I don't know why that didn't come... 
to fruition. You would have thought we would put the two together. Hindsight. All right. <laughs> And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night.